Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'd encourage you to turn or tap your way to 1 Peter chapter 1. You can read along with us, make sure what we're saying actually is from the Bible. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, don't panic. We'll put the words on the screen, but we'd love to give you a copy on your way out. Now, do you know what you just sang? Because it's a little on the intense side of things. You said that you want to burn for him. Ha! Did you mean it? Listen, no judgment. Everybody was doing it. You were just singing along. Maybe you weren't really sure what you were saying or if you were committing to that or not. But that is some heavy language that you're going to burn for him. You want to be consumed by him. That is a level of commitment, a level of choice, a level of intensity that I think few of us are ready for. And yet, it's an accurate song. There are scripture pictures throughout scripture that kind of key into that language. You think about Moses being confronted with the presence of God with a bush that's on fire but is not consumed. You think later in the period when Israel has been taken captive and you have the the people of Judah in Babylon and you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they get thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace and yet they're not burned. But instead, a fourth is with them, one like the Son of God. You get into the New Testament and you have the apostles. These are Jesus' main disciples and they're watching Jesus' whole ministry and then they watch as he dies and then they watch as he's resurrected. And this Jesus that they watch do that then ascends into heaven, as we talked about after Easter. And kind of, now what? (laughs) Well, what is that the Holy Spirit comes to, to clothe them with power. And how is that represented? By tongues of flame that sit above their heads. It's very biblical imagery. But that doesn't stop you from asking the question of like, okay, that's what it is, but is that what I want? There's always two groups at Hope Church. There's always people who are investigating Christianity, and there are people who are Christians, but they need a little, you know, kick in the tuchus, a little, little, uh, little help, a little nudge. I put myself in that camp. If you're investigating Christianity, then you have to ask yourself, is what you want really this level? You're not being invited into a new way to live your life. You're not being invited into productivity tips. You're not being invited into sort of pop psychology. The only places that we see in just sort of our normal life, this level of intensity, we see it in love, usually like new love when it's high emotion, low commitment. (laughs) But with that new love and it burns... And then we also see it in people that have committed themselves to really growing in something, that they have a passion for an instrument. They have a passion for a sport. They have a passion for, you think, in parts of the military. They're consumed by something, and so they give everything they have to it. It consumes them, and they come out the other side of that as what? We're saying that that's what Christianity is. And so, I need you as you're investigating Christianity to really understand that you're stepping into something that will take over in the best way. 
You're not stepping into something that's okay with halfway, that's okay with dipping a toe in. You're, you're stepping into something that is a relationship. I'm going to make the case for why you still want it, but know that that's what we're saying. If you're a, a believer, but you kind of are on the fence a little bit, you need to understand that what you have put yourself into is a whole life thing. What we're going to talk about in the next part of, of what Peter's preaching to us is talking about trials and being tested as though by fire. You don't go through that. You don't endure that halfway. I think for a lot of us, we kind of get our head turned a little bit. It's part of why we need a little kick in the pants. We get our head turned a little bit by the world around us. And the affluent, I know you may think you're poor, but you're not, the affluent world that we live in, in this part of the country, in this part of the world, is really given to sort of like just maintaining a nice drip of pleasure. Make enough money, position yourself well enough so you can minimize most of the major suffering and just sort of set up for yourself daily pleasure. Monthly pleasure that you're looking forward to. Quarterly, annual, big pleasure that you can save up and really splurge on. But you see, it's, it's just, it's all about maintaining, mitigating, keeping the suffering low, keeping the pleasure as high as you can enjoy it. Well, that gets blown out of the water by this concept of stepping into something that is all-consuming. That's all-consuming when it feels good and all-consuming when there's a trial involved. Okay, let me make the case for it. Why do you want that? Read with me First Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't know if you were listening as I read that. I tried to give it lots of inflection to try and keep you interested somewhat as I'm reading. Hopefully you didn't have to do that. You were already into it. But if you read what I just said, you'll notice that Peter is not hedging his bets. Talking about being tested by fire and this sort of awful commitment that's part of Christianity, it's everything. You don't halfway come. He also promises a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He describes a life that is passionately consumed by love. We're not talking about maybe. We're not talking about percentages. We're talking about give everything and get everything. Now, a guy like Peter preaches something like this, and you have to wonder... You're going to say, okay, is this true? If you're going to make this leap, if you're going to take this commitment, if you're going to give yourself fully, you have to know if it's true. And for him to mouth off about trials, he better be pretty dadgum confident. 
I don't know your stories that well, but the stories I do know of the people in the room contain significant suffering. Significant. And I have a problem. I tremble somewhat when it comes to texts like this, which happen all the time throughout Scripture. Because I'm addressing suffering, I'm telling you about suffering, and you're going to wonder, okay, well, what does this idiot know, really, about my life or my suffering? And I'll just plead the fifth. But Peter does have a deeper understanding. We would say that he is speaking on the authority of inspiration, that God's speaking through him. But even if you don't believe that, God's using personality. Let's just talk about this guy, Peter. And honestly, we kind of know a lot about the guy. He doesn't reveal a ton about himself in First and Second Peter, but being one of Jesus' disciples, he's mentioned regularly throughout. If you look at the New Testament, which is the part of the Bible that talks most about Jesus, the first part of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament are stories of the life of Jesus. Well, one of his disciples is going to be all over that. We know kind of a lot about him from there. Then the Bible switches to a history of the church that's being planted by God through these apostles and going out into all the world. We call that book Acts. And in Acts, especially the first, eh, I don't know, half, a little less than half, this guy Peter is pretty heavily mentioned. And then in the books of the rest of the New Testament, he's, he's kind of peppered in there every now and again. We kind of know a lot about this guy. In fact, we know kind of a lot about the trials that he endured. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, is given by Jesus the responsibility, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but the responsibility of taking this message, this thing that they are witnesses to with a limited number of people. The resurrection was seen by hundreds of people, but the full life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus is is seen by many, but is kind of maintained by these 12 apostles, lose Judas, 11 apostles, Admetus, 12 apostles... And it's their job to be these witnesses, these core foundational witnesses to this testimony. That's a heavy weight. You talk about your ambition in your life. Peter had to carry a heavy weight. And he watched as the apostles around him were getting murdered. Every time that happened, he had to think, okay, there's a little bit more on me. He had to experience difficulty in leadership. He had to experience difficulty even in success. He's preaching and thousands of people come to know the Lord and are baptized and are now looking to the apostles for leadership. In that early church, he's got all kinds of problems. It wasn't too many months into it when people started selling property and giving what they had so that the poor could be cared for among this massive number of new believers. And some of the people that walked in to sell pretended... They lied to make themselves look more generous than they really were. There's no reason to do that. It's not socialism. They don't have to sell this stuff. But if you choose to sell it and give it, don't lie about it to make yourself look more impressive. And confronting that person about it, the Holy Spirit killed that person right in the middle of the service. Now, I don't know what you're expecting. Probably what you're expecting, like the worst thing that could happen to you on a Sunday here at Hope Church is getting roped into serving. And that's not the worst thing. You're not in danger at all. That's a wonderful thing. That's why we talk about it so much. That's why I do it every week. However, I don't know, but I hope you've never wondered about coming into church and having the possibility of the Holy Spirit just killing you. That's quite a thing. But it's also hard on me, okay? I don't want to have to be preaching a sermon 
and have to say, okay, can I get some of the young men uh, to take this corpse out? <laughs> We'd like to finish the service, and his wife's on the way. Can we please get this corpse out of here? And then the wife comes in, perpetuates the lie, Holy Spirit kills her too. Not easy. Not easy. All that's kind of within his ministry, but think about the guy himself. If you've experienced loss and pain, I've described some of Peter's, you also can experience a great deal of pain from your own failure. For many of us at Hope Church, we're not just people who have suffered because of stuff outside of our control. Most of us, many of us, all of us, have suffered a great deal from stuff that's well within our control. Failures that we chose. Well, Peter knows that too. Famously, he has a total failure before the cross. Jesus tells this this person who says that he loves him, Peter, listen, you're going to deny me three times before I go to the cross. Peter's saying, no, no, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about, which is a little bit, you know, heretical. But he says that to Jesus, I will never deny you. Well, before the rooster crows, Peter denies him three times, and Jesus actually makes eye contact. Bloody, scourged Jesus with a crown of thorns carrying a cross makes eye contact. And Peter leaves, and he weeps bitterly. Do you know what that feels like? Peter does. And you say, well, that's before the cross. You know, this guy, he's just a guy. He doesn't, he's not empowered. You know, we have acts coming where the Holy Spirit enrobes them in flame and clothes them in power. Isn't that, you know, now, now it's Peter, right? Well, no. Get into the later part of Acts. Get into Galatians and see that this empowered Peter also compromises the gospel that he's supposed to be preaching. You want to talk about failure... Peter, out of fear of man, gives into what's called the Judaizers, people who are adding the law of Moses back into the gospel. If you don't know what that means, let me just tell you, we believe that we're only saved by faith. It's not after all that we can do. It's not because of the things that we do. It's despite the things that we do. The Bible calling even our righteousness filthy rags. We're saved by an imputed righteousness, fancy for a a given righteousness. You are given righteousness because of what Christ has done for you. You just accept it. You don't earn it. And yet there were people that were teaching because of pride, and it's in, a, it's in our hearts. We don't want to just kick the Judaizers. We want to see it, and we want to be warned by it. But they had this pride that said, no, 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 no. If I just accept it, then it's grace. But if I earn it, I can be proud. So they wanted to earn it. And great Peter, who should be defending the gospel, he trembles. He gives in. Thanks be to God for Paul and Barnabas and others who could step up and say that that was out of line with the gospel. Peter knows failure. He knows pain. He ends his life with all kinds of difficulty and pain. He's got anxieties. He's got beatings. He's got confusion. He's got fear. Before, as church tradition tells us, being killed in Nero's persecution of the church, He was hung on a cross, but in a sort of comedic, triumphant victory upside down. He didn't want to be hung in the same way as Christ, so he asked them to flip the cross upside down. He does know this suffering, and he describes it as a little while and if necessary. 
If we're going to get to it, we have to see what he saw. And he begins by saying, in this you rejoice. Now, the Bible is filled with stuff like this because it's written for people who are willing to actually think about it and read. There are really smart people and really dumb people who step up to Scripture. You don't have to be brilliant, but you do have to actually read it. And he says, in this, he's referring to something he's already said. You can't just say, oh, okay, whatever, and keep moving. You have to stop and say, what does this refer to? Many of us read the Bible like you listen to your kids tell a story. You know, they start telling you about an episode of something they've seen, and they just use a lot of pronouns. So you don't know what's happening or where anything's happening, but you just endure it because you're supposed to. None of you are bad husbands like this, but I've heard of husbands who zone out for the first third of what their wife is telling them. And then they kind of key back in halfway through and realize, like, I don't know who any of these pronouns are. I don't know who he, she's talking about. Or he. And then you just wait because maybe through context clues you can get away with it. You know, so you focus in. Well, don't do that. Just listen the whole time, okay? What is this referring to? Well, it's referring back up to what he's talked about in verse 3. According to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's talking about that gospel. He's talking about how God can make us alive with this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That historical fact that Peter was a witness to, that Jesus being resurrected from the dead makes a way for us to be resurrected from the dead. That's what Christianity has taught for two millennia. It's what the Old Testament taught constantly, that there would be this resurrection, that we would be brought back, that the the death was not final, that there is a living hope, that there is a certainty now of that future event. And that that certainty, this, can give you a joy, can give you rejoicing even in the midst of various trials even while you are grieved by various trials. If we don't feel that joy, we've got a problem. You're disconnected in some way from what this is talking about. This is giving you the promise that, that there is a way for you to be connected to all of this stuff God is saying that He's doing through Christ. He's making a way for you to become sons and daughters adopted into His family. He's making a way for you to be clean, to be given a a wedding garment, and then to become, and again, this is a weird analogy for a lot of guys in the room, but it's just all over Scripture, to become His bride. You have access to these promises. You have access to the joy of one who is a son or a daughter of this king. If you are living out of step with that joy, I think it's because you're living out of step, kick You're living out of step with the gospel that you've believed. It didn't suddenly become untrue because you stopped thinking about it, but your life stopped reflecting the joy of it because you stopped thinking about it. You stopped rejoicing in this living hope. Well, don't. Come back to this living hope, and if you will, then... The trials that come, though now, for a little while, if necessary, that grieve you, can be trials in which you rejoice. Think for a minute again about that grief that he's talking about. To pursue kingdom work, you are going to have trials that will grieve you. To just live in this world, you're going to have trials that will grieve you. You're going to go through loss. 
You're going to experience betrayal. You're going to be contested, which is wild to think. You know, if you overcome all the internal barriers and all the external barriers, you actually get over all the speed bumps to get a car moving, to actually try and do something in the world. You try and do any kind of ministry. It just takes so much movement internally to get to a place where it takes so much connection externally to get support so that you can really get something going. And as soon as you do... You're contested. Isn't God finally just impressed with you? Why would he still allow you to be contested? But it is. It's true. You are. And he may even allow you to experience great failure. Ah, man, that is so disheartening for so many believers that God would allow you to fail. Isn't he in this with me? Isn't he excited about people being excited about me? Well, no. (laughs) No, he's not. It's for his glory. It's possible. It'll be possible. You'll be ashamed. You'll be bored. But why do these, these grievings come? Why do these trials of various kinds come? It actually says some of that in here. First, it does mitigate it. It says for a little while. Now, if you're in suffering, it doesn't really matter how long the time is. It feels like a long while. But Peter's reminding us that though you're in the midst of it, in the midst of it, it seems never-ending. It is going to end, and it, it is really for a little while. This is what the living hope has to say about that. The living hope is that there is a resurrection. And that when all of this pain and difficulty, all of these trials finally grieve you to the point of the grave, still the grave is not the end. So much so, and this is very difficult for us to conceptualize, The whole of your life will be like a morning mist that's here and then gone, burned away in the dawn. I don't think this is a great illustration, but it stayed with me for years and years and years, so maybe it is a great illustration. But it's the concept that if you take, you go and you stand right on State Street. Maybe you do it right on 72. So you're you're looking all the way up towards the Capitol, and you can look and you can kind of see Point of the Mountain. And you imagine a fishing line that runs right past you, but it goes all the way to the state building and then further. It goes all past Ogden, all the way up to Canada. And then you imagine it coming all that way past you and then down, and it goes way, way down. It goes past Point of the Mountain, past the end of the state, past all the stuff south of us, Mexico, goes and goes and goes. And you're chewing gum for some reason. And you take that gum and you stick it on the fishing line. That gum is your life. And that fishing line is eternity. It's a little problematic. We don't believe you have like an eternity past. But imagine it just goes. And the further you step back, the fishing line's still there. The further you step back, the fishing line's still there. But that gum just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. When Peter says for a little while, he actually does mean it because you really are going to be with him forever. He also says, if necessary, and I think that's difficult for us too, because he's beginning to hint at why God allows this suffering. First, he says, if necessary, because I want you to understand God's posture in all this. God does not rejoice in our suffering. You know, once upon a time they had like um, funny some videos, now they've got fail army. You get to rejoice in people's suffering. 
you know, the, like the pratfall or the dad, you know, the kid hits the pinata and misses and hits dad in the crotch. And you, go, you laugh at somebody else's, but that's not God's posture towards your trials. If necessary means that he doesn't enjoy. And the Bible supports this. It says in Psalm 56, 8, that the Lord, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You don't count your children's tears even though you feel it when they cry. Do you know God has a running total? He cares about your crying. So much so that he keeps your tears. So why does he allow these sufferings? It says in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that, that language is describing reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how many of you are smelters. Many of you probably don't have home forges. But this language is still beautiful and helpful. A pastor named John Piper says it this way, When gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable. So it is with your faith in God. You have faith, you trust His promises, but there are impurities in it. There are elements of murmuring and pessimism. I speak from painful experience. And there are tendencies to trust money and position and popularity alongside God. Dirt mingled with the gold of faith. Yeah, murmuring and pessimism. Yeah. The idolatry that trusts in other things alongside God, like money, position, and popularity. Yeah. That's absolutely a part of the Christian life, and it is through trials that God burns some of that away. Understand that the the illustration here continues to underline God's care for you despite the fire. Gold is precious. It's precious. You know, again, you don't have to be a metal worker to realize, of course, I'm wearing a plastic ring, but, you know, gold is precious. Why would you take something so precious and put it in a fire and melt it? Who was the first person to do that? And whoa, what did the guy next to him say? And yet, in heating it up like that, in heating it to the point that it's liquid, there are impurities that come away. You are precious to God that He would allow you to melt like that. It is so that, it is because of, it's something that He sees and allows. And it gives way to inexpressible joy. It gives way to dropping all of those other idols, dropping all of that sin of murmuring and bitterness, and instead putting your eyes on Him, and in Him having inexpressible joy filled with glory. What do I mean by that? Well, looking at Paul, a different apostle, but one that was also a sufferer, it says in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a church, and he's saying, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely. Do you see? He's using uh, this reason language. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. There's so much content in Scripture that's on this topic. You can't touch it all. But just see that time after time after time, it is saying that God allows some of this stuff, but as He allows it, He uses it to refine you. And that refining takes your eyes off of this stuff that won't actually satisfy. It takes you off of this stuff that feels good. Bitterness, mm. It's sweet in the mouth, even though it's bitter in the belly. It, in that murmuring, that seems like a good way to deal with the difficulty, murmuring against God and against his leaders. It burns all that away, and what's left is just your faith, just your trust in him. That's how he finishes. He says, though you don't now see him, you love him. You don't now see him, but you believe in him. You behold him with eyes of faith, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What does that really look like? In the midst of trials, what does that really look like? A more modern-day sister, Peter's like our brother, this lady's like our sister. She died actually just a couple of years ago, a lady named Elizabeth Elliot. She was passionately concerned about the gospel, so much so that she became a missionary as a single lady. And she went down to this part of the world where um, translation work was the big need. They needed people to bring the Bible through translation into one of the local languages that didn't have access to the scriptures. And she and a team were working on it, and a flood comes and takes, this is a long time ago, but takes all their written work and just destroys it. Why would God allow that? Then she gets married, marries this missionary guy, and they go together to reach this tribe. They're going to try and share the gospel and bring the gospel to these people that have never heard it before. They feel like they're in the book of Acts. And she's sitting at home with her baby, their baby, while her husband makes contact and is a part of this long process and gets speared to death. Why would God allow that? How would she endure that? and continue in ministry for another 50, 60 years. This is what she says. She sees the hands of Christ. Those hands that keep a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. Can you trust Him? You see, God may not explain in detail exactly what he's doing with every suffering that you experience. Don't try to maybe get to that point. Instead, keep your eyes on him who suffered with you. A perfect picture of this also happening in Peter's life is that God miraculously through Christ feeds thousands of people. Then they send them all home. Jesus sends the disciples in the boat across Galilee, goes off to pray. The winds come up. They get a hard time going across this lake. And as they're trying and they're working and it's been hours, it says the fourth watch. They've probably been on this boat in this storm 
for nine hours. And you can imagine the pain, the difficulty, you're tired, you're wet, and you're also a little bit bitter because all these other people got fed and sent home. They're all in their beds. And here you are close to the Lord and you had to do all that work and now you don't even get to sleep. And you're riding on this boat across the Sea of Galilee. You're fearful for your life and then across the water comes this person walking. First, they assume it's a ghost. You would too. Secular as you say you are, you would too. And they call out, ah, because of a ghost. And the person walking says, take heart. It's I. It was Jesus actually walking on water in the storm. And Peter, in a perfect display, both of like the bullheaded kind of goodness of the guy, the bravery of the guy, but also kind of the idiocy of the guy, shouts out and says, Jesus, if it's you, let me come to you. Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat and begins, eyes on Christ, to actually walk on water. You think that's crazy. So did Peter eventually. He starts looking around and realizing what's happening and begins to sink. He cries out to Jesus. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him up. He says, you little faith, why do you doubt? Peter had his eyes on Christ. He was able to walk through the storm. As soon as he took his eyes off, he began to sink. But even sinking, what happened? Jesus, man, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Jesus grabs him and pulls him up. Brothers and sisters, that's what I'm inviting you to. You're outside of Christianity. Come and meet a love like this that suffers with you, for you, and maintains your suffering even now. Brothers and sisters who say you've already accepted Christ, come and enjoy this level of passion. Don't keep fiddling with Christianity. Dive in. Be consumed. And as the trials come, cast your eyes to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for thee. See his wounds, his hands, his feet. That Savior on that cursed tree. Oh, man. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please don't let us continue. Please don't let us continue with an apathetic faith. Lord, please don't let us continue to walk with our eyes on ourself, with our eyes on our idols, with our eyes on our piddly pleasures. But instead, Father, keep our eyes on you. Lord, as we suffer, let us suffer together, Lord. As we hurt, let us care for one another and show one another again and again the hands that were nailed to a cross for us. Lord, for those that are investigating uh, and those that are investigating through tears, people that have had a lot of pain and they hear sermons like this and, and read parts of the Bible like this and they wonder, Father, I pray that you would woo them to yourself with your love. Show them a Christ that bellows out at Lazarus' tomb and then takes a cross on himself. As we move into this time of the Lord's Supper, Father, please clarify again and again what we do and why so that we can see your face and really be saved by grace. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray.